Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. In this episode, we have the quartet of Karen Woody, Jonathan Armstrong, Matt Kelly, and Jay Rosen, hosted by Tom Fox. We take up a variety of topics, including the SEC enforcement action against solar winds, the U.S. Supreme Court's Code of Ethics, the continued corruption in Santa Clara County, and sleaze in the British political institutions. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Everything Compliance. We have the quartet today of Matt Kelly, Karen Woody, Jay Rosen, and Jonathan Armstrong. Lady and gentlemen, welcome back. So, Mr. Armstrong, uh, some fairly interesting political news out of the United Kingdom this week, and you seem to think it ties into compliance and ethics. Why don't you tell us the connection you see and about your former neighbor, David Cameron? Yeah, thank you, Tom. And I've just literally just arrived in the southwest of England, where we're fortunate enough to have a holiday home, and we're a couple of streets away, but not as costly a property from David Cameron's holiday home. And you might remember, or people might know, that he rejoined the government this week in the UK. This is a big deal. It's it's about as significant as Biden asking Bill Clinton to come back and run foreign policy uh, in UK terms. And the first thing I want to say is I'm not uh, necessarily knocking David Cameron's ability to do the job. And if you'll permit me, Tom, I'll give you a little story. So the village has a summer party every year. And when we started coming to the summer party, there was a very nice chair of the Residents Association who was trying to pass the sausage plate round with a crutch, and she's of a certain age. So I volunteered to be the passer round of the sausage plate, a role that I've tried to perform with due diligence for the last couple of years. And it's a summer party in open air in a field. And <laughs> thanks, Karen. And and I was passing the sausages round when a, a biggish guy bounded up to me and said, Hello, Jonathan, beautiful evening. How are you going? As if he was some lifelong friend of mine. And it was David Cameron. And I was surprised that he was greeting me by name until I realized that I had a badge on with my name. But he had the best ability of anybody I have ever known to read badges and and almost act as if he knew you, you know, hand straight out, greeting people by his Christian name. So my point being, if we want somebody like that as a foreign secretary, I'm all for it. And I think he has, as I say, got a skill that I've never seen, which I imagine at foreign summits, etc., 
is a fantastic skill to have and a skill from what I hear, those of you who've met Bill Clinton, I'm sure probably Tom's in that Venn diagram, probably there's been nights out with Mike Tyson, Bill Clinton and Tom in the day. But if that's the sort of skill you want in somebody who's running your diplomatic team, then he's got it. But the real difficulty, I think, is that's not really how we should judge politicians. And with David Cameron, obviously, you get a fair amount of baggage. And a lot of that, I think, is compliance related. For those of you who didn't follow the story, he after he left government, he teamed up with an outfit called Greensill Capital. He lobbied for Greensill. He sent, I think, some 60 texts or WhatsApps during the pandemic to get contract. And that organization is apparently under investigation by the Serious Fraud Office for fraud. That isn't a great look on a politician. And I suspect why that's almost faded in the background is because we have had a prime minister in between then and now who was accused of far greater corruption and influence peddling. And I think the lesson for compliance officers is sometimes we get sort of almost blindsided by let's say our organization is going into a country in Africa, we might have people in the business say, yeah, our agent there is corrupt, but he's not as corrupt as some I've seen. And I think the danger in a compliance setting and in a political setting is we somehow think it's like he's not as bad as the other guy, rather than maintain absolute standards that I think we have to maintain if we're subject to FCPA, if we're subject to UK Bribery Act, or if we're in politics. And I suspect what's happened in politics over the last five years or so is that we've become almost immune to scandal. And things that we we would have been appalled by five years ago, we're no longer appalled by. We've become almost desensitized. And I think that's dangerous in politics. And it's also dangerous in the world of compliance. And as I say, I've seen compliance officers say that, that that the business has said, yes, but we have to be in X country. Let's pick the least corrupt person we can find and understand the fact that we're going to have to drop our standards. So what does a compliance officer do in that situation? You know, what does a cabinet office secretary or whoever's meant to be checking public appointments do? Well, I think they just have to carry on being unpopular and saying, you know, the right things. Maybe I've told this story before, but one time I was on my way to Washington, D.C., and I was meeting with a client, and I'm at Dulles Airport in those strange little contraptions you have to get people off planes. And I'm getting an SMS from the client to say, I have to be late, emergency board meeting, have to be late. And I'm saying, look, we can cancel if we want. And he says, no, 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 I still want to do the dinner. And he had a situation where they discovered corruption, the non-execs had met, and he'd explained the level of corruption, which was relatively trivial. Let's say it was from memory less than $100,000. And the the lead non-exec director said, 
how long do you think that guy's been in business? And he said, well, I know how long he's been in business because I do the filings and it's 35 years or whatever. How long's that guy? Goes around the table and then says, so between us, we've 250 years in business. Do you think we've never bunged a guy money to get a contract between us? And, and effectively says to the general counsel, who's also the chief compliance officer, there's a day minimis. If you ever spot bribes and they're less than, say, $150,000, I don't even want you to mention it at a board meeting. And he was saying to me, you know, what's, what's my next step? And I'm saying, you know, my usual cop out of I don't advise on U.S. security law and it, I don't advise on U.S. law at all. But I think you've just got to keep raising it. And you may be unpopular and maybe the lead non-exec director hates you. And maybe eventually he starts petitioning for your dismissal. But if you're not going to raise these things and you're not going to have integrity and be the person in the room that speaks out and says this doesn't look right, What's your purpose as a chief compliance officer? So I think that's where I think there's a, there's a line. I think a lot of people in the UK have accepted the fact that there are allegations of fraud and corruption that touch David Cameron, but they say, yeah, but he's not as bad as Boris. Well, the test isn't Boris. The test is an absolute standard. Are we electing people with integrity for public office? Well, we haven't had an election, but are we appointing people with integrity? And I think it's the same for a compliance officer. Are the agents in these foreign countries people we can be proud of or not? And it's a more binary test than maybe it looks the way things have changed over the last five years or so. Well, uh, what do we do in America then, Jonathan? If Boris Johnson's not the baseline, what's the baseline in America? Well, I mean, obviously, I think there's, you know, as an outsider looking in, you have similar problems in the US, don't you? I mean, I think as we see it from, from our vantage point, there are allegations of, of corruption and non-fair dealing on both sides of the aisle. And we could get into a situation, I suspect, where, you know, one of the candidates has a, a conviction or a civil finding against them, at least as they're running for office. And I don't know. I mean, historians will probably tell us that this has happened before. And clearly it happens in other countries. I mean, Nigeria, for example, I have some knowledge of where um, I'm, I'm being slightly rude, but basically have to have had an allegation against you. Uh, to be there just as, I don't know, a long-distance trucker has to have tattoos as a, as a price of admission. But we shouldn't be like that, should we? And I think the difficulty of Cameron in this role is Cameron did have an anti-corruption campaign when he was prime minister. Obviously, that was made somewhat challenging by the fact that his family finances were exposed as being part of the Panama Papers, and that was I guess, unhelpful to this campaign to clean up tax havens, et cetera, around the world when it was discovered that he'd used one. But I think if that's going to be part of the UK's broader campaign, it's very difficult to stand on an anti-corruption ticket when there are outstanding allegations, which may be untrue, against you. And I think the US perhaps has the same problems as well. And that's maybe why it's become harder 
for the US and the UK to uh, stamp out corruption. You know, my sense is that corruption's, I wouldn't say a battle that's been lost, but it's certainly a battle that neither the UK nor the US is fighting as hard as it did. And that position of moral leadership seems to have been abrogated in some respects. Uh, Matt Kelly, the Supreme Court announced their first code of ethics. Is it broken already? Um, how do we say this? Yes. That, that's it. That's the whole thing. And I promise I'm not going to turn this into a rant and shout out or just rant about the code for the whole time. But yes, Tom, the Supreme Court did adopt this document that it calls a code of conduct. And that affords the rest of us in the corporate world a good opportunity to look at what this code does or doesn't do and help us understand what an actual good code of conduct would do, which I would say this thing that they call a code of conduct is not good. We all know why the Supreme Court has adopted this code. You can sum it up in four words, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, who are the two justices who throughout most of this year now have been documented with numerous instances throughout their time on the bench of favoritism, frankly, undisclosed, lavish trips with men who have serious interests in rulings that the court would make. Samuel Alito, he took a fishing trip to Alaska where he was flown there on a private jet, said that he didn't have to disclose the, the seat on the private jet, which probably would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars because the seat was going to be empty anyways. So therefore, it had no value. I might as well sit in it. I would encourage any compliance officer, next time you're on a flight and you see an empty seat in first class, you go ahead and tell the airline, that's going to be empty anyways. I'm going to just sit in it. Uh, you know, it was ridiculous. And the man who organized that trip then, of course, had several different cases that he pushed in front of the Supreme Court later on in subsequent years. Clarence Thomas, we could talk about him all day long with his double dealing and you know, the favoritism he got with Harlan Crow, who is a conservative billionaire who pushes all sorts of right wing causes in front of the court. And here was Thomas getting loans for his famous RV, which were then forgiven or tuition for one of the uh, wards, I guess. I don't think it was Clarence Thomas's own child, but a child he was helping to raise where somebody paid for that kid's tuition at a private school, blah, blah, blah. We had all of these instances of at least the appearance of misconduct by these two justices, if not actual conflicts of interest from these two justices. The appearance of a conflict was enough that they just blew right by for the years and never told anybody. And so that brings us to this document, which finally the court has decided to adopt. Because if they didn't, Congress and everybody else was going to A, think this court stinks, and B, try and force a code of conduct on the court anyways. So what did they do? They adopted this highfalutin, florid thing, 15 pages long, that talks all about the ways a justice should behave. But that right there is flaw number one in a code of conduct, is that it doesn't actually direct the justices to do anything. You must, you will, you shall. There's none of those verbs at all. It's all you should. The justice should do this, should do that. It addresses a lot of points that are relevant for a potential conflict of interest, such as when the justice should recuse themselves, when they can or cannot work with outside groups. 
So there's some awareness of, okay, what would an ethical risk look like and how should we address it? Code of conduct should include that. Any corporate code should think about what are the laws we have to obey? What are the regulations in our industry? What are the ethical standards we're purporting to follow? And our code should talk about those things. And the code does that. So that's one thing that it gets right. But again, there's no enforcement mechanism. There's no, you shall do this. It's all that the justice should. And the other big flaw with the code, I picked out two. One is that it doesn't actually direct them to do anything. It's just like a rah-rah cheerleader, please do this to be good, which you know I write out on a piece of paper to my kids in the morning, please be good. And I put that in their lunchbox when they go to school. Same thing, but there is no enforcement mechanism in this code. It doesn't address who is supposed to investigate allegations. It doesn't address how somebody would submit a complaint about judicial misconduct if they seem to think that there is one. It makes a passing reference to justices must not retaliate against people who submit allegations. It's the only must that I found in the whole text. But I think that's important because it shows that the code is at least aware that maybe somebody reporting an allegation of misconduct, like that's a thing, maybe we should address it, but they never actually do address it in this code. There's no mechanism to say anybody who observes an incident of misconduct should call this phone number or this person to launch an investigation. As far as anybody can tell, these should documents or should principles, it's up to each justice to enforce those by him or herself. And would a code of conduct that says the CEO gets to in investigate and decide their own misconduct, is that going to work for anybody who's listening to this podcast? Could you bring that to your board? Could you bring that to the Justice Department if you're under investigation and say, this is our brand new code? Senior executives get to decide it for themselves. No, no. That's really the, the thing that sticks in my mind here most of all, is there's no mechanism to make this stick. Codes of conduct are not just talking about accountability and how we support it. Codes of conduct are there to make sure everybody understands you can be called to account for your misconduct, even against your will. That's what a code of conduct should be doing to enforce itself. And that ability to call the justices to account, it isn't there. Um, I don't buy the idea that they are above reproach. Certainly, if you look at Thomas and Alito, they're not, but you know that other groups couldn't investigate them. You could have a complaint against a justice, randomly select three other justices to serve as a board of inquiry. They could borrow an inspector general from the executive branch somewhere to conduct an investigation. There are ways to be able to hold Supreme Court justices to account that doesn't involve them getting to decide for themselves. And Tom, the last big thing that I would just say is None of this code addresses the previous allegations of misconduct and conflicts of interest from Alito and Thomas. Like, there's no acknowledgement that maybe there was a reason for this. And anytime you are drafting a code in response to a scandal, you're already on the bad back foot. Let's remember a code should, in the ideal world, you should be drafting it just because you want a good code of conduct, because you want to lay down markers for here's how our ethical principles matter, and this is why we're going to behave in this way. And we're going to spell out certain standards of conduct and expectations. And you should just do that for the love of the game. And if you look at a lot of corporate codes, they do. And that's true whether it is Pepsi's code, which I looked up, it's 42 pages long. 
And it mentions the employee will or shall or must, these definitive directives, dozens of times. You could look at Boeing's code, which is at the other extreme. Boeing's code is a whopping one page where they articulate nine rules of conduct. And it says, I will, you the employee signing it, I will do this nine separate times. That's a good code. Pepsi's is a good code. Radically different structures of what their code are, but they get that the code is there to enforce things. And what the Supreme Court put out here is just a feel-good document before Congress steps in and tries to shove one down the court's throat. So it is good that we have this in the world to dissect it, but nobody should think this is an impressive code. It is not. Tom, you're on mute. Karen, Woody, do you have a question or comment for Matt? I do. You answered part of it by suggestions about what would be possible enforcement mechanisms if someone runs afoul of this, uh, whatever we're going to call it, I guess, ethical code. But is there uh, is there any contemplation that this would eventually maybe have to carve into lifetime tenure? Is there some way? I mean, I say this because if the enforcement mechanism, the penalty here is something that's just monetary, a lot of these people are making seven figures on a book deal. Like maybe, is there any way that we actually would not only have enforcement, but maybe some redirection of conduct such that penalties would be maybe high enough? I, I'm just, I'd be curious about your thoughts about that. I think that's an excellent point. And I have talked about similar issues in executive misconduct, say in an SEC enforcement action, where you impose a monetary penalty on an executive and they write a check for it because CEOs can, you know, they're worth considerable amount of money. Big deal. If you really wanted to harm CEOs or general counsels or CFOs, you would yank their ability to serve at a company, you would yank their law license or their accounting license. And I appreciate that the SEC right now doesn't have the authority to yank a general counsel's law license. But if you were telling a lawyer you might get disbarred for doing this forever, that's a whole lot scarier than saying you might have a $100,000 penalty when you're a senior partner pulling in $3 million a year. I think we could, as a nation, impose some sort of term limit on Supreme Court justices. Like the Constitution says justice, Supreme judges, federal judges have lifetime tenure. It doesn't say on which court. So, you know, I believe that one proposal was that you would have staggered terms of 18 years for each Supreme Court justice. Then they get busted back to the, you know, circuit court or the appellate court and they can rotate around. I think that would be an excellent idea. It would get us away from these pitched battles over Supreme Court nominations, because if you stagger it the right way, every president would get one per term. And then, you know, kind of like big deal. If you establish that precedent, that a Supreme Court justice would eventually rotate off to be a a judge somewhere else, then you could, in theory, add language to that statute saying, or upon evidence of gross misconduct, or I don't know, it's a sort of civil or criminal investigation into their behavior. Like there are ways that you could put the fear of God into justices. This certainly, this code doesn't do it. And I think you're absolutely right that when they're pulling in seven figures on a book deal, you know, what do they really care that there might even be a monetary penalty, which this code doesn't even address that. There's no talk about any penalties anywhere in this code. But you're right that I don't think monetary penalties would be much teeth for this level of professional achievement. But, you know, accelerating their path off the court, if we actually just passed a law to do that, which we could, I think that would be a much more effective way to do it. Karen Woody, we had a really interesting uh, 
Oh, Jay, I'm sorry. You have a comment for us. It's okay. So, Matt, I know the um, U.S. Congress has bigger fish to fry. Um, would it be fair to say that the reaction has broken down across the normal Democratic and Republican lines? Or has anybody that wouldn't that you wouldn't think would be alarmed by the new thing from the S Supreme Court? Has, have we heard anything that we didn't expect to hear, I guess is my question. From the so, Congress. no, we haven't. The leading voices around complaints about the, co the court's behavior usually come from Sheldon Whitehouse, the Democratic senator from Rhode Island, who absolutely believes that there should be a stronger code of conduct and more enforcement. Republicans ignored this pretty much because they see Thomas and Alito as on their team. Therefore, we have to protect the team. It doesn't matter that Thomas and Alito are at the least terrible about the appearance of the court. And nobody wants to actually look and see, you know, are they taking favors or are they just turning a blind eye to the favoritism that they're getting? Uh, but no, nobody's saying anything we that would catch us by surprise. Republicans have ignored it. Democrats are saying we should do better because we should. Is that actually going to lead to us doing better as a country? Unfortunately, no. Thanks, Matt. So with that, Karen Woody had a very interesting SEC enforcement action filing recently involving solar winds. So I wanted to ask you your thoughts on that and the addition of the current chief information security officer as a part of that filing. Does this portend danger Will Robinson for compliance officers? Uh, yeah, I think the short answer is yes, but we'll get to that. I think after I give a little bit of background for anyone who hasn't been following the solar winds case. So as Tom noted a couple of weeks ago, the SEC filed complaint alleging fraud and violations of internal controls against SolarWinds and its chief information security officer, Tim Brown. And those charges are in relation to a cyber attack that occurred on the company's network monitoring system, which is called Orion. And the attack, which was, I think, deemed, or it's called the sunburst attack, happened in 2020. So this lawsuit or this filing by the SEC wasn't entirely shocking because the company had disclosed that it had received Wells notices from the SEC in 2022 and early 2023. So we sort of knew the SEC was building this case and probably had had many discussions with the company about, about this. But so what's, what's the charge here? So first you have a fraud charge. And as we know, fraud requires scienter, so intent to deceive. So this is not just a footfall. This is a company and in particular also this individual who is knowingly making misstatements, you know, intentionally deceiving, in this case, both the public and the SEC and public statements and, and SEC filings. So from that, you get the, the fraud charges, which is under 10b-5 here. Again, related to material misrepresentations that the company made, both publicly and also in SEC filings. And so when you think through that, what does that mean? What are the statements that the SEC is alleging were, uh, you know, how would the SEC even maybe build this case? Well, after, you know, obviously a year at least or more of reviewing documents and looking kind of under the hood at SolarWinds, they have found a number of what they think are very damning statements by Tim Brown, this chief information security officer. And they include things like a 2018 presentation wherein Brown acknowledges some vulnerability in the cybersecurity realm of the company. There's a few other emails and other, you know, the, the SEC has a 68 page complaint that goes through all of these 
points of, you know, data points about where there was some acknowledgement on both uh, Brown's part and also other executives about, like I said, clear vulnerabilities in cybersecurity measures, sort of this lack of resilience, things that we need to work on and make better. And they, they cobble all those things together in this complaint, say that this was clear fraudulent statements when they release things that say that they have, you know, state-of-the-art cybersecurity measures. Or also, another point is that the disclosure in the 8K, so the press release after the cyber attack, you know, acknowledge, did not acknowledge, I should say, that there had been previous threats and previous points that the company should have been aware of, meaning that this sunburst attack, if nothing else, should have been somewhat foreseeable given other incidents that the company had, had faced. So uh, I should also note that might be related to this chief information security officer individual charge, which is sort of, un I mean, it is unprecedented that this individual is being charged for this activity. The SEC really, I think, likes to tack on that this particular individual made $170,000 by selling options. And they sort of link that as the profit motive, like this is his this is what he was thinking about. That's why he's purposely concealing these vulnerabilities or risks of the company because he wants to make some money in the trade. So that, like I said, was filed in a couple of weeks ago. Since then, the company has, you know, swung back. I should say that it was just a filing. It wasn't a settlement. So this was a, an acknowledgement that the SEC is bringing this case. It's very much not a settlement because the company responded and, you know, in a sort of categorical denial of um, any lack of adequate securities controls related to this attack. They said, you know, the, the statements they had made about saying that they had inadequate risk disclosure, they said, you know, they sort of listed this is the risk that we said. We made that clear in, you know, the discussion of risk that is required to be disclosed. And they basically are saying, listen, if our risk disclosure was inadequate, then everyone's is. Like we had a pretty standard, these are things that could happen. This was a novel type of cyber attack, all these things. So it's clear this is really going to be challenged by the company. And then I think particularly from Tim Brown, who's now really facing criminal charge. I mean, this isn't, well, it's the SEC's charge, but potentially even follow on criminal charges here. So hot water for the individual who simply is, you know, where the buck stops, maybe. Um, although I think it brings up, I think it brings up two really important points that I want to just highlight here. One is obviously the individual thing, which we're going to talk about in a second. The other one I wanted to highlight is that in addition to these fraud charges, there's a 13B2B charge, which is the lack of internal controls. Uh, and I only highlight this one because I think, you know, we will see this charge added to everything because it's almost a like, well, if we're in this position, something must have gone wrong. It's to me almost the nearly a sort of strict liability tack on like, well, some control missed this if we're in this place. And I highlight this only because just this week, the Republican SEC commissioners referenced 13 B2B's internal controls provision as being the Swiss army knife that the SEC is using to lump, you know, so many things in, under it. And they're, they really point out the fact that 13B2B actually has to do with accounting controls. And, you know, I know we could probably very quickly bridge the divide between a cybersecurity control and an accounting control. Those things could run closely together, but I would posit that they are different. I mean, and, and 13B2B is a sort of violation of your accounting control. So that's what they sort of focus on. It reminds me, I wrote an article years ago about called No Smoke and No Fire about the SEC bringing 13B2B charges without the underlying substantive things. 
philosophical idea of, well, your controls wouldn't have caught something if something bad happened. This is the opposite. This is something bad happened. So clearly there was a, some control missed it. So I do think that this being able to use the internal controls charge is something that's not going to go away. I think this is going to have the breadth of internal controls liability just will keep expanding. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I think the biggest takeaway here is really this individual officer liability. I mean, woo, like he's facing at least an officer and director bar plus, you know, monetary. I mean, it's a, he's really in the hot seat here. And so, you know, query what this means for chief compliance officers, the board on a derivative suit here, any other executives who's, you know, signing these filings or making these public statements. I think it'll be interesting to see if SolarWinds is indemnifying him because in theory, he's doing his job. I mean, I do think that's why his his trade activity, that one that like he also made money on this, is how the SEC is trying to drive a wedge between those things and make him seem like maybe he was, you know, acting in his individual capacity kind of idea, but unclear. I do think like, as you asked, Tom, the chief compliance officer at SolarWinds, I don't know who that person is, but they have to be having a lot of sleepless nights, you know. They're the next one whose door is going to get knocked on. Same with a lot of the C-suite. I think it's it's pretty it's a pretty big swing for the SEC to come after chief information security officers when this level of sort of unprecedented like attack. And I again just say this feels very strict liability in the sense of you know you know does this sort of chill the ability to do more if you're always going to get in trouble? You know, just it's one of these things where I think it's going to be really interesting how people navigate the cybersecurity space in particular because it's always evolving it's you're always trying to do your best and that almost always won't be enough and so what does that then mean about what is required of you i think is it's a really dicey area so I, i'd really be curious to hear well think about this what you thought about this in the last couple of weeks because it's really i think taking this industry by storm mr armstrong question or comment for the professor yeah several of each yeah i Followed it really closely. I was on a panel at a conference called ISMG about two weeks before before this news came out. Interestingly, a panel on personal liability of CISOs and could they be liable? And obviously, we had Joe Sullivan, which we talked about on this podcast previously. There's another interesting case called Carlos Abarca, which is a financial services case in the UK, where it's not exactly a cybersecurity issue, it's on digital transformation. And one of the interesting things, by the way, in, in the Abarca case, is he says, yeah, digital transformation projects are really hard. And they say, not if you say on LinkedIn that you're an expert in them. And they effectively used his own LinkedIn resume and said the bar was here. You raised it to here because of the the uh, statements you made on LinkedIn. Caveat anybody who's added a- AI to their LinkedIn profile recently. But I think there's quite a lot to unpick here, isn't there? I mean, I think, as you said, one of the significant uh, aspects, I think, is that there was a disclosure of cybersecurity risk. But I think the criticism is that it was generic, not specific. And and how specific do you want to be? I mean, bear in mind the fact that this was a breach, my understanding is, that the US security services were all over. I imagine if you said at the time that we're going to disclose the exact CVE, the exact vulnerability exploit that led to us being compromised, I imagine 
elements of the US government wouldn't be especially pleased with you. And so I don't think it was an easy decision to say, we're going to be very open about this when law enforcement and government agencies are on the scene. And why are they on the scene? Well, because it made governments around the world more vulnerable. A lot of them were using this tool. And the thought certainly at the time was this was a nation state actor trying to harm critical national infrastructure. So this wasn't as easy as, I don't know, some retailer saying this is how we've been hit. So I think that's a challenge. And if we're going to have specific disclosures, how specific are they going to be? Because the more specific we are, the more likely it is that the threat actors win and the more likely it is that other threat actors can get in the system at the same time and fill their boots up. Bearing, you know, bearing in mind the fact that patches quite often are slower than they ought to be. So I think that's one element that we just need to think through really carefully. I think the remuneration thing is definitely a challenge. And obviously, in many tech businesses, CISOs commonly do get stock or they do get options. And that's a way of incentivizing people. It's very, very common. And I think the the advice that I gave in um, the event, you know, with my Nostradamus-like predictions before it happened, was saying that we're going to have a case like this and saying that remuneration is going to be key. And anybody who's taking a role where your package depends on stock price is going to have to be really careful, A, about taking that package and B, about the disclosures that the corporation's making when bad things happen. And I guess we've had... I don't know, cases like Martha Stewart back in the day, haven't we, where people have traded on information that wasn't public relating to breaches. I think another interesting aspect of it to me is these PowerPoints and emails coming back to haunt the executive. Mm -hmm. And I've not read them in the detail you have, but some of them seem to be pleas for resources, you know, saying we haven't got the resources we need for a corporation of the size we are. Give me more resources. And in some respects, he's doing the right thing by highlighting to the executive team the fact that they need to more fingers in the dam. But that's come back to haunt him and haunt him alone, which sits slightly uncomfortably with me. I've been involved in a data breach where the board, it could have been fixed, but the board pulled budget from the uh, CIO in this case. And as soon as the chair found out where the external lawyers in the investigation, the chair literally said, you know, rang the company secretary and said, what's my spending limit what am i allowed to spend and the chair said and he was told this number and said what does the software cost and it was a lesser number he said i'm not even going back to the executive team i'm going to authorize it as chair get the software installed tomorrow and you would think that those members of the senior management team who rejected that plea for resources you'd think they're at least as culpable and i think it's puzzling at this stage that we've got a guy in the frame who asked for help rather than the guys and gals who said he couldn't have it. And then I guess the last point that I'm really interested in and and, and 
how does the DNO situation work then? I think it's always very easy for us to say, uh, you know, whenever CISOs are coming into role or chief compliance officers, make sure that you're on the DNO policy. But would that fund something like this? And and how common is it for US corporations to allow the whole of the C-suite to be on the policy rather than just the board? Do you have any feel for that? Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously would vary from company to company, but um, for the most part, I think we had this conversation when we were talking about CCOs, that sometimes they're not carved in yet because it's not seen maybe in sort of like CEO, CFO, and some of the other sort of top positions along with the board. And so, yeah, I think is a CISO considered carved into the DNO insurance would be one of the first things I think you'd want to ask. Same with the chief compliance officer, because after certainly the certifications, you know, all these things that seem to be upping the risk for those particular positions, especially when they're doing things in the scope of their employment, it seems like something that certainly should be carved in. I don't know off the top of my head sort of how many are, like what the breakdown is, but I would say that absolutely was something you should consider and think about if you're going to take on one of these roles. And yeah, I mean, I think DNO insurance gets a little tricky if it's, uh, you know, when you have these scienter-based charges or sometimes where that is ex like excluded, you know, for you know obvious criminal activity, there's obviously some circular logic on that where, well, <laughs> how else would I defend myself but for this insurance? And so that I think is tricky. But, um, but yeah, given that this is, and the company is also a defendant, I think feels like that should so squarely fall within the indemnity that hopefully Tim Brown could, could seek from the company. I don't know if that answers your question. Matt, you have a question or comment or series of questions or comments? I don't know if it's a full series, but a couple of thoughts. I think that for the vast majority of compliance officers, A, watch this case because it's significant, but B, the real issue here is your processes for relaying information about risk around the company. And we call it disclosure processes, but always remember that the disclosure processes should flow in two dimensions. It is what the company discloses out to investors, but it's also what employees disclose up from the peons down on the factory floor up to senior managers. And that's really the gist of where things unraveled for SolarWinds. So they were putting out their security statement for years saying, we take everything so seriously, and that's the disclosure out. But there was a breakdown, according to the SEC, in the disclosure processes up because the senior executives who were allowing those outward statements allegedly turned a blind eye to all of the employees down at the bottom saying, our security sucks. We don't do this thing that we're saying. One was something like, I'm so fed up with the senior geek heads telling, making statements about cybersecurity that aren't true. And... Those lower level internal communications, like in an SEC complaint, they look really bad. Like this does not put solar winds in a very flattering light at all. But are we supposed to take everything that those employees say as gospel? Because some people might be shocked to hear sometimes lower level employees just like to complain. And maybe they have very good grounds to complain. Maybe they're just unhappy people. But taken out of context, I'm not quite sure that what they're saying is or isn't reflective of some kind of breakdown in risk management. And that's 
really the allegation here is there was a breakdown in risk management. But the other big point I would emphasize for compliance officers is I don't think this particular lawsuit is groundbreaking. I think it is the natural successor to similar cases we have seen from the SEC before. And I would zero in right on something that came last year when the SEC sanctioned Activision Blizzard. I think it was $35 million for poor disclosure of corporate culture risks because Mm -hmm. the disclosure out was that human capital is our most important thing and we take it seriously. On the inside, they had a terrible corporate culture. There was sexual harassment and assault running rampant for years. So the SEC said, well, clearly, if that was going on, you didn't have the right disclosure up and you were making a fake disclosure out. Now, in that Activision case, A, Activision settled, uh, I suspect because they just wanted to put this to rest because they had a merger to do with Microsoft. But B, they also didn't identify any particular executive there who might or might not have been responsible. But who would be responsible for internal complaints? That sounds like a chief ethics and compliance officer to me. So would there be different scenarios where they could take this litigation logic and instead of applying it to cyber risk, they might apply it to other ethics and compliance risks. And now you, dear listener, you're the one who is also looking at a personal liability lawsuit from the SEC. Like, I think this is a big CCO liability issue that they just cranked it up to 11. Uh, yeah, I agree. All right, Mr. Rosen, we have continuing saga of bribery and corruption in Santa Clara County. This is a story we started looking at back in 2020. Where are we in 2023? Well, I don't think we've really made much progress, but as as you said, Tom, about a year ago in San Jose, a longtime San Francisco Bay Area sheriff went on trial on public corruption allegations involving her office's granting of concealed carry weapons permits and costly jail mismanagement. This unusual case against Santa Clara County Sheriff Lori Smith was a civil process seeking the removal of an elected official, but it's similar to a criminal case with prosecutors from a different jurisdiction to avoid conflicts of interest. The trial followed an investigation into allegations that Smith's office traded concealed weapon permits for donations to her re-election campaign and mismanaged the jails where mentally ill inmates died or were injured because of her actions or non-action. Smith was also accused of withholding documents concerning an internal affairs jail investigation and lying on campaign finance forms. She had been the sheriff of Santa Clara County home to Silicon Valley since 1998. But last year, the Board of Supervisors unanimously passed a vote of no confidence in her and requested outside investigation by Attorney General as well as the county civil grand jury. The first count accused her of implementing policy or practice of granting licenses to carry concealed firearms on the basis of whether an applicant was a campaign donor a member of the sheriff's advisory staff or a prominent individual in the community or was associated with prominent individuals, corporations, or otherwise had personal connections to the sheriff. The grand jury alleged that Smith failed to make individual good cause determinations on the basis for concealed carry permit applications by people who were not VIPs, keeping them pending indefinitely. 
In another count, the grand jury alleged Smith committed willful misconduct by failing to provide information to the County Office of Correction and Law Enforcement. That office was seeking information involving an internal affairs probe of a, of a 2018 incident in which a mentally ill man inflicted serious injuries on himself while inside a jail transport van, leading to a $10 million settlement. Flash forward to this November, and a Milpitas business owner has pled guilty to a conspiracy to solicit a bribe, the latest development in the case that uncovered a scheme under former Sheriff Lori Smith's administration that we've said before that she's trading concealed firearm permits for various donations, including in support of her reelection campaign. After Michael Nichols, age 58, of Milpitas, the owner of a gun tooling and customization shop, pled guilty, the court reduced the charge to misdemeanor pursuant to negotiated disposition and imposed a one-year jail sentence. Today, the DA's investigation has resulted in four convictions and Smith's forced resignation. The defendants remained in the gun permit bribery cases are former undersheriff Rick Sung, former Captain James Jensen, attorney Hartwell Nahal, and here's the key one that Tom likes to talk about, Apple's head of global security, Thomas Moyer, and a local insurance broker, Harpreet Sharda. Evidence shows that Nichols was an important middleman in this scheme, introducing executives at AS Solutions Inc., the company seeking the gum permits, to local attorneys, and ultimately to Jensen of the sheriff's office. He helped arrange these meetings that led to the companies agreeing to pay $90,000 in exchange for more permits. The first 45,000 went to a PAC, which sent it to support Smith's ultimately successful re-election bid. The cons conspirators were working on the second $45,000 payment when the DA's office investigation interrupted said scheme. Smith, in the scandal because she approved the concealed permits, was never criminally charged in the corruption probe and never testified to the original grand jury after invoking her Fifth Amendment right. In addition to this week's plea, Smith's conviction and resignation, the DA's probe resulted in three other misdemeanor guilty pleas. Christian West, former CEO of AS Solutions, which provided executive protection for high-profile companies such as Facebook, Martin Nielsen, and Jack Stromgen, former AES Solution Managers. All three agreed to, pro to cooperate with prosecutors in exchange for reduced charges. The trial proceedings are scheduled to begin next January 22nd. So who needs foreign FCPA investigations when we have such fun stuff brewing in our own backyard? Jay, can we use this as either an educational opportunity or perhaps a lesson learned for compliance professionals that they need to pay as much attention domestically at, to their company's spend as they do internationally? Yes, we can. This is the poster child for that. All right. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we're on to fan favorite shout outs and rants. Mr. Armstrong has a hard stop at the top of the hour, so we're going to let him go first. What do you got for us, Mr. Armstrong? Yeah, thanks very much. So having knocked one side of the political aisle, maybe my rant is about the other. And it's about the tactic of what I'd call salami slice announcements, where politicians, and you've seen corporations do it 
as well, they sort of give a little bit of the story. Then they're pressed and they give a little bit more and they give a little bit more. And such an example is Michael Matheson, the Scottish Health Secretary. He's a member of the SNP party. And he had some criticism over an £11,000 connection bill for his tablet. It's government-issued tablet, and it's meant to be a secure way of communicating. And originally, it seemed the story was that he'd neglected to swap his SIM card. So the SIM card deal came up at the Scottish Parliament, and he was meant to swap from network provider A to network provider B. And the reason we were given for the high charges initially was he'd forgotten to swap out his cell card and the roaming charges when he went on holiday to Morocco were greater as a result. Well, the story went on for about a week and we eventually find out that why it's £11,000 is yes, he hasn't swapped his SIM card when he's been told to a number of times. But the real issue wasn't the constituency business that he said he was conducting and which had allowed him to allocate, I think, £3,000 of the bill to his constituency funds. It was the fact that it seems that one or both of his sons had been using the iPad whilst in Morocco as a tether, effectively, to watch the Celtic game live, or maybe more than one Celtic game. It seems that they paid £7,000 in roaming charges, billed back to the Scottish government to watch the Celtic game whilst on holiday. And Matheson has said that he effectively salami cut his announcement because the boys weren't in politics, and he was. Now, that's running as thin as a slice of salami with a, as a defense here. So I guess my rant, but my plea to politicians is sometimes things go wrong, and maybe it wasn't your fault, but you've made the situation much worse by not confessing at the start and can we have an end to salami cut announcements and with that i must bid you all adieu and thank you for listening and i'll listen to the other rants on the catch-up and i'm looking forward to them and apologies for leaving well uh we will say adios and we'll pass it over across the pond to matt kelly what do you have for us today matt yeah tom so i have a shout out this week in the form of a quick book review I am here to recommend a new book that came out earlier this fall called Our Least Important Asset by a business professor at Wharton by the name of Peter Capelli. And so he explores the question of if our most important asset is human capital and employees, and every single company always says the people are our most important asset. If that is true, then why do our financial reporting rules treat employees, liabilities. And he goes from there. It is a fascinating look at how we pay executives to increase shareholder value, but we have created a system of financial reporting rules that make employees an expense. And so therefore, if they are harming shareholder value, you need to get rid of them as much as possible and hire as few people as possible all the time. Simple example, 
if I'm running a company and I buy a $100,000 laser cutter, that's a $100,000 asset. I get to put it on the books. It's something of value. If I hire a great salesperson and pay them $100,000, that's an expense and it doesn't show up anywhere. And there's, there's no reflection that having a great salesman is clearly an asset to the company. Or if you in upgrade that laser cutter by $10,000, now it's worth 110,000 on my balance sheet. But if I give that salesman $10,000 in training, and now they're making even three times as much in revenue, it's just an expense and it doesn't show up anywhere. And now I, I get the objection a lot of people will raise is that a laser cutter can't decide one day to quit and walk out the company. Fair, except would that not mean therefore that we should try to incentivize companies to keep employees around for the long term, as opposed to incentivizing them to make it as pain-free as possible when the employee leaves. So I'm going to cut the training budget. I'm going to not pay them much money. I'm not going to hire a lot of employees, which is actually what we do in corporate America when everybody says, I wish I could have a great steady job that pays a good income and I could stay with them for 30 years. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. It is a fascinating look at how topsy-turvy all of our financial reporting rules are that have made modern employment generally a miserable experience that, by the way, doesn't actually add any value to the company anyways. That would be much better to focus on our most important asset. But instead, we treat them as the least important asset by Peter Capelli. So if you're looking for a good book to read, go find that at your local library and give it a read. Hmm. Karen Woody, do you have a shout out or a rant for us? I have a very quick shout out that harkens back to previous shout outs. And this one has to do with last Saturday. Megan Rapino and Allie Krieger took the pitch for the last time in their professional careers playing against each other. These two sort of giants of women's soccer. And so it's just a shout out to how much the world has changed since they started playing soccer. And a lot of that was because of them. As controversial as maybe they, at least Megan Rapinoe has been at times, I actually think it's been good controversy and has resulted in great strides for women in sports. So that was just a shout out and hats off to the two of them. Jay Rosen, what do you have for us today? Uh, I've got a positive shout out to Giles Martin, who's George Martin's son, who has taken the mantle to remaster the Red and the Blue albums. That This is probably past some of your time, but I remember being in New York City, going to a department store called Corvettes with a C, or maybe a K, and going in there and buying the Red and the Blue albums. And then flash forward to 1987 when I moved out here to California and the Red and the Blue albums came out on DVD, or rather CD for the first time. So it's amazing how the Beatles catalog is just such an evergreen. And I can't say that I'm a fan of the song Now and Then, which they posthumously recorded with John Lennon's voice. But I got to tell you, everything else about a day in the life and hearing this stuff all cleaned up and remastered just brings the music to life. So here's a positive shout out to AI and, you know, everything that came out of the Get Back movie to gut, to give people technical tools to take things from our past and re-listen to them in a new way. So that's my, that's my uh, shout out. So I'm going to have my first quadruple shout out. And it involves the ransomware gang Alpha slash Black Cat, shout out number one, who has taken extortion to a new level by filing an SEC complaint against one of their alleged victims, 
because their victim did not comply with the four-day rule to disclose a cyber attack. Meridian Link was threatened. Alpha Black Cat would go to the SEC. They did not disclose, and they went to the SEC. So that's shout-out number one. Number two, Matt Levine, writing in Bloomberg, called it, quote, maybe the most money stuff story I've ever written about, end quote. Shout out number three, Bruce Carton, who in his daily update from the securities docket said, quote, I urge you to read his whole column that covers not just uh, this outrageous story, but also includes a great segment on how the SEC's lucrative whistleblower program is going to be professionalized. The center of gravity is going to shift from amateur whistleblowers, i.e. those who happen to have worked on fraud once, to professionals, people whose whole job is finding fraud and profiting from it. And finally, to the journalistic site Bleeping Computer for breaking the story. So a great episode, ladies and gentlemen, and I can't wait to see what we can come up with. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Happy Thanksgiving. Good to see you all. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning Everything Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will subscribe, rate, and review this episode wherever great podcasts are listened to. I've linked to all of the topics we touched upon in this episode in the show notes. So if you'd like additional information, I would urge you to check out uh, the reports, articles, and press releases regarding the topics from today's podcast. The gang will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode, so I hope you'll plan to join us again. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. The Compliance Podcast Network recently won five Communicator Awards, so I hope you will check out some of the award-winning podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, including Data-Driven Compliance, The Coming Conflict with China, Never the Same, How Business Changed Forever, from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the night sky to eclipses coming to Kerrville, Texas. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.